Hello, and welcome to the World We Live In podcast. I'm your host, Eric Patterson. Alongside me is Colin Malden. Join us as we explore the amazing, mysterious aspects of our planet's cultures, history, and future trends. to be here. Good to be here by myself. Kyle has left me for the wonderful country of Spain um, along with his family. Uh, I'm sure they're having a great time. Um, Yeah, Spain's a great place. Went last summer. It's wonderful. Uh, I'm sure the weather's great. So I hope they're having a good time. Um, I am by, yeah, like I said, I'm by myself and it's a little weird um, for those podcasters that... uh, talk just into a microphone. I highly commend you for that. Um, it is a challenge not having someone here, but, um, I got some good stories, uh, laid out. Um, main story is a UFO story from Spain, which I feel like is appropriate. A UFO encounter, I should say, um, which is definitely appropriate. Um, I don't wish that upon anyone, especially Kyle, so just to make that clear, hope that doesn't happen, um, but anyway, we're gonna, we're gonna do that for our main story, um, I do have one thing to say, I just finished Westworld, uh, second season of Westworld on HBO, and it is, uh, it's quite the show if you haven't watched it, um, I love it personally. Uh, I think I I, I, lo- I love pretty much anything HBO does. I think they do top quality stuff. Game of Thrones, obviously, Band of Brothers, The Pacific, all that jazz. I mean, they do, they have a lot of other shows too. I just haven't got around to them all. Um, but yeah, if you're not familiar with Westworld, check it out. Um, if you are familiar with it, um, and you have finished season two, um, I don't quite know what to think just yet. I'm still processing all the information. So if you're along with me there, um, that's comforting. Um, I, I know there was a podcast I listened to for season one that kind of helped me catch up with all the information that HBO shows throw at you because they have so many characters. Um, but yeah, Good show. I'd highly recommend it. It's worth your time. Um, it makes you think a lot, which I love. I need I need shows that make me think. Um, I love those love those type of shows. But um, so that was a good one. Um, yeah, I think that's all I got for announcements. Um, yeah, we'll hop right into it. Um, okay, so <laughs> I was going to start off with a bang. Um, I was scrolling through Facebook uh, this morning while drinking my coffee, um, and I came across this, uh, I don't even know what to call it, it's like an announcement, um, slash, 
it's not tangible, but um, I'm just gonna just gonna say it. It's it's called the Space Nation of Asgardia, and at first I was like, oh no, is this one of those like uh, hidden hidden space organizations that the government's running? Um, but no, this is um, this is a legitimate, if you will. Um, nation, sort of, they have apparently 200,000 members, it's, uh, they just elected its first leader, if you will, it's a Russian, uh, Russian billionaire, um, who made his, um, who made his, uh, fortune in the weapons business, um, and he is apparently the leader of this organization and um, they are planning on building uh, space settlements, if you will, that they would um, that they would advertise as having um, all earthly problems not present. Uh, they say the mission is creating a peaceful society in space. Um, that is free of all earthly conflicts. Um, yeah. Somehow, I don't think that's gonna work. I would love it if it would, though. Huge fan of Mass Effect, if anyone's a gamer. Love Mass Effect. Um, that idea is very appealing. Um, but free of all earthly conflicts, I feel like is kind of... I don't want to be mean, but it's, I feel like it's kind of silly. Like that doesn't make sense because humans, I feel like humans are humans. And if we go somewhere else, we're just going to take everything that we have developed along with us. And you know what I mean? It just does. It doesn't make sense to, to, claim that something is gonna be free of all earthly conflicts if the people that already inhabit the earth are going somewhere else that just I, that just doesn't make sense to me I love the idea don't get me wrong I think it's very cool I mean I think I think most people think it's very cool um do I think it's gonna happen that's another thing mm-hmm I, I I not for a while um, they do have a, um, they have a constitution. Um, yep. So that makes it official. Um, of course. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's very cool. They want to develop, um, cities that have like anti-gravitational properties, um, like on the moon. Um, so that's pretty cool. I I would rather live on a different planet than the moon, though. Um, I feel like you'd have to do a lot of work to make the moon look nice. It look it's look it looks nice from our backyard when we're staring at it when it's full, but um, and I'm sure it looked nice to um, the men who have been there, um, the astronauts, I should say, who have been there. Um, I bet that was super cool. 
Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I would rather live other places. But, so, that is, this is a super futuristic idea. Um, so, Asgard, Asgardia comes from um, Asgard, which is the Norse, which is the home of the Norse gods, I believe. Um, so, that's where that comes from. Which kind of makes it, kind of makes it uh, seem like a paradise, if you will. So, but yeah, keep an eye out for that. If you're looking to move, I'm sure um, property there might be a little cheap. Um, but who knows? It might be expensive as well. Oh, you also have to become a citizen. So, um, yeah, check that out. Uh, if you're not happy with where you're living, uh, you can check that out online. Not sure how that goes, but um, that should be fun. Should be fun. If you're involved in that, I would love to hear from you. Um, and yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that. Okay, moving on to more earthly matters, uh, and then away from them again when we talk about Spanish UFOs. Um, my dad, shout out to my dad. He sent me a video and. Um, he sent me a video on, uh, through email and I had been aware of this idea. Well, not this idea, the fact that this had happened. Um, so in 1995, um, 14 wolves were released into Yellowstone park, <laughs> Yellowstone national park, excuse me. Um, I'm, if you're an American, you're familiar with that. Um, if not, uh, the Yellowstone national park is located in Wyoming and it's it's one of our it's one of our more famous um, national parks out west, and um, lots of wildlife, lots of huge huge land. Um, but anyway, uh, so fourteen wolves were released there in nineteen ninety five, and currently as of December twenty fourteen, so a little dated, but you know, it, I just looked it up right before the podcast. But uh, there were. 104 wolves in 11 packs, okay? So here's here's where it kind of gets interesting. Um, after the wolves were released, they started hunting deer. And um, what happened was after they started hunting deer, um, it sort of started pushing the balance of the, of the, of nature um, in the park. And so um, when they started hunting deer... In, in certain areas, more wildlife grew back because deer were not there eating it. And so flowers grew back, which then brought back more birds. And then this started creating like a snowball effect. So after the after after um, plant life and tree life started growing back, then birds came back. Then rivers started um, getting more... Uh, different wildlife beavers came back. Um, beavers started uh, beavers started developing natural dams in the in the streams and rivers, and um, it just it just kept on going from there. And um, uh, the more uh, hawks, red foxes, badgers, weasels came back. Uh, even populations of bald eagles and ravens rose. Um, so it just, these wolves like kickstarted this 
natural uh, shift in the park's ecosystem, which it, it's simple in itself. Like the animals, animals obviously live in the wild. They have they have more of a of a connection. Like they live off the land. They're surviving and thriving, but. Um, it's just wild to me how that can have such an impact on such an important area in the United States. And even even this happens uh, other places. Um, when you see when you see um, populations of important animals decrease, the whole the whole balance of, of the of nature it's it, it shifts and there's this there's this there's this thing where it, everything is connected, even if it's extremely small. Everything's connected, and these these wolves being introduced brought back this this uh, this balance. Not to say that it was extremely out of balance, but there was there was a reason why they introduced these wolves to this uh, to this area of Yellowstone, and so um, yeah. It's 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 going well. It, what's it? So 1995 to uh, 23 years. Uh, I was born in 95, so 23 years. Yeah, um, 23 years later, and um, seems like the wolves are doing well. I'm actually going out to Yellowstone. Uh, well, actually, to close to Yellowstone, we'll travel to Yellowstone. But I'm going to see my cousin out there. I'm super excited. I love out west um i think it's it is it is one of a kind uh place uh in the world um where you can experience so many um so many types of nature um in relatively in a relatively small area even though it's huge out there it's a lot of space but you got the deserts you got the oceans you got the mountains you got the pacific northwest with the forests um it's just it's so cool out there i love it so i'm super excited for that but yeah i just really enjoyed uh what my dad sent me and like i said i'd heard of it um and joe rogan talks about it um a lot um when uh talking about kind of nature uh conservancy and and all that important stuff that um, that has to have a place in uh, in our society, uh, because if we don't have if we don't have if we don't have if we don't take care of nature, then um, I honestly think it will come back to haunt us. So love that, love that, and um, hope you guys do too. I, I really think it's an important aspect that is overlooked by many people as we um, continue to move into cities and um, and as we sometimes get away from um, the earth and what it truly means to live a earthly lifestyle as far as being connected to nature. Um, not materialistic, um, but understanding what nature means to the animals and plant life and and humans. So, yeah, love that story. Okay, now to uh, hop on our. Let's hop back out of Earth, sort of. Um, okay, 
This story, um, it takes place uh, in Cadiz, which is on the... It is an ancient port city in the Andalusia region of southwestern Spain. Um, so yeah, if you've ever been, it looks awesome. I haven't been. I've been there. I've only been to Barcelona. Um, but this takes place. Uh, this story takes place there, and it's kind of a long story. Um, so. We're not too far in though, so I'll, I will I'll do my best to not make it uh, convoluted and long. But there are certain details that I um, would like to point out, um, and uh, and yeah, we'll get on. Okay, so um, this story revolves around uh, four or four to five. Um, uh, kids, uh, teenagers, uh, at the time, and, um, they are, they're, I, actually, I should step back, um, it takes place on the coastal town of Conil de la Frontera, and we'll just go with Conil for sure, for short, um, so it happened on September 29th, and, uh, but, that's when like the main action happened. It actually began a little bit earlier. So there were a couple. Uh, there are a couple kids, um, Loli, Bermundez, and Pedro Sanchez, Isabel Sanchez, and Pedro Gonzalez. Um, they were taking. They were walking on um, Bateles Beach, um, and. They were like late teens, early twenties, and um, they. It was around like eight thirty nine, and they noticed a glowing round reddish orange object, um, which appeared to be uh, hanging out um, right above the Roche Cape. Um, it was it was about five kilometers away from where they were seeing it, and they kind of stared at this light for around half an hour until it just kind of drifted away and moved toward the horizon and was out of sight. Um, obviously, they were intrigued and they decided that the next night they were going to come back with some binoculars so they could obviously see closer. Um, and so they do this. And sure enough, this object was right back there. And it did the same thing as it did the night before. Now, with the binoculars, these kids were able to see four white dots in a square formation at the center of the glowing circle. Like flamboyant, uh, they almost say like buttons, flamboyant buttons. Um... These buttons would emit a random flash from time to time, and uh, then it would go out of sight. Um, and the same, this same thing was um, repeated uh, fourteen to fifteen consecutive nights, always around the same time. And um, the kids would remain there until around ten. 
um, in hope that the light would return after its little show, and but but it never it never did. So, um, then there le this leads to like an actual encounter, and so the witnesses' families and. It's, the witnesses' families and uh, and other people they knew uh, were aware of what these kids had been doing every night, and so on September 29th, a fifth member joined. Um, his name was Lazaro, the brother of Isabel and the youngest member, and so they all sat. They were all sitting around the beach at around 8:30 um, uh, in front of. Los Corrales Bar, and uh, the it said the sea was pretty calm. Uh, There's no boat in sight. Um, although there, th- that is that there does the sighting of a boat does come up in later parts of the story, but we'll get there. And okay, so. Um, the, so they were approximately, uh, well actually I should say, um, they didn't have to wait too long, um, until they first saw something and it was a bright semicircle that was coming from the sea. And so they had their binoculars and they could see a group of red lights forming a sort of triangle and this new uh, UFO craft um, flew above their heads moving toward the town and these kids were just caught off guard and um, they, they, were, they were just super excited and then a third blaring light appeared right over them and they couldn't discern what type of shape it was. Um, they do know that um, they noticed that when the UFO above them made three consecutive flashes, the red UFO at the Roche Cape would respond with two. So there was some sort of communication um, between these two objects, and it lasted for about half an hour. So. While they were observing this communication, um, there was something else going on. So at about 9 p.m., they noticed two strange figures standing by the beach's shoreline. Um, their presence raised the alarms of the of these kids, and um, th- well, they raised the alarms because these. Beans looked extremely weird, very UFO-ish. Um, they were, so they were almost seven feet tall, covered with white flowing cloaks whose ends reached all the way down to the water with round, featureless white heads with no hair. Um, so I picture, if you've ever seen um, Prometheus, that's kind of what I picture. Um, those big humanoid uh, creatures that they, uh, that they find but with a white cloak. So yeah. And they said the cloak was almost glowing. It was so white. So that's kind of an interesting side piece. Um, 
So, so the kids were distracted by this communication, and then they just noticed these these white these um, bald, flowing white cloak individuals. And so, um, one of the girls um, was freaked out by this, and she was like, "We got to get out of here." Um, Pedro Gonzalez, he urged everyone to stay calm and was like, hey, we're going to hang out, suggesting that the two cloaked individuals could be some sort of pranksters, which I think is a natural reaction. I mean, I wouldn't want to initially think anything's a UFO, so I feel like that's a, that's a little bit of a natural reaction. But, um, so yeah, and so they're, they're looking at these guys, and the two entities started moving out of the water, and... They were moving awkwardly, like they weren't comfortable or they weren't used to, I don't know, our gravity or how 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 it looks to walk on Earth. And so um, they um, the kids started to run and as these as these beings started walking out of the wa- out of the water but they retreated a little bit and the kids retreated a little bit and then they stopped to look back um and once they realized these things weren't running after them they kind of hung out and kind of spied on them and so they um they 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 settled down the kids settled down and um these two cloaked uh, individuals, um, they kept their attention focused on this glowing red object in the distance. And the kids started observing uh, a, like a shooting star. Uh, it was a small white blue light the size of a tennis ball falling toward the beach. Yet, like, vanishing or losing its luminescence like two feet or so above the individuals and um, the two humanoids proceeded to sit down with their backs like straight Um, so imagine if you're like sitting you've been hunched over for a while you gotta like straighten up your back that's kind of what that's kind of what it seems like they look like so they were sitting straight up in a sort of, they built this U-shaped wall surrounding them, and they, um, then they like leaned their backs on this barrier that they built. Um, so uh, it seemed as if they were trying to obstruct the view of them, but the kids could still see what was going on, and. Um, they proceeded to pass around this small the the um the human or the humanoids or the entities or whatever they seemed to pass around this small sphere of this bluish color um this and you could you could speculate that this is the same thing that fell from the sky um uh and yeah so they were passing this around um and the kids observed this uh, this passing being performed among the humanoids about a dozen or so times, um, and yeah, uh, Pedro, uh, Pedro Sanchez he um, basically uh, 
basically got a little, he got a little terrified and, uh, because there was a third figure at the scene that he witnessed, there was a entity at the foot of these two entities and this third entity was a giant, they say around 10 feet Sorry, around a 10-foot humanoid that was dressed in a dark, tight-fitting suit. And he displayed, like, a pear-shaped head. Um, The two... And so these... The two... uh, The two men, um, Pedro Sanchez and his friend, um, they decided not to tell the rest about this giant that they had seen themselves. So, uh, so yeah, these... the, The two kids... Uh, they saw they saw this guy, but apparently the others maybe didn't have the binoculars or couldn't see. Um, and so, uh, th- so that happened. Um, the blue light that these two humanoids are passing eventually disappears, and a few seconds later, the beans got up and they were no longer in their original appearance. They were no longer bald with white cloaks they the white cloaked figures had somehow changed into a human couple okay so that's freaky (laughs) that's really weird um the male was around seven feet tall um which was around the height that they said they were originally um, had long blonde hair and was wearing dark jeans and a checkered shirt. The woman was slightly shorter than the man. Her hair was also long but dark in color and wore a thin blouse and a long skirt. So, um, these two things, these two humans, if you will, started walking toward the town, um, the man was leading and the girl was like a couple steps behind. Um, so, sort of strange. Um, throughout the account, it's as if they're just like a little off. Like their, their, um, their comfort level is like not right, which, um, uh, which is all, which is seen in a lot of men in black cases where like, uh, a man in black or a woman in black shows up at your door and their their mannerisms are just a little strange as if they're like not comfortable um so that's that's just kind of an interesting uh, side note right there um so uh where was i so yeah these they they started walking out of their little uh changing area and where they change their appearance and um they walk they, they're basically walking towards the town um so the kids um their attention was shifted back toward the beach where just above the water a white cloud was coming from the coast toward them at a great speed when this cloud reached the shore, it stopped and evaporated. And at that moment, um, the girl, Loli, who was using the binoculars, alerted her friends of this dark figure, um, which um, 
which Pedro had initially saw, and he confirmed that it was the same dark, um, dark dressed um, being that he had seen before, and um, the witnesses, these kids, claim that this humanoid wasn't even touching the ground; rather, it was hovering above. Above the sand and above, uh, above, yeah, above the sand because it was on the beach at this time. And uh, its arms were kept firmly on each side of its torso. So that's, yeah, that's kind of a strange, that's not, that's kind of, it's not kind of, that's a strange kind of uh, figure to be in. Um, And so, uh, Pedro. Uh, and Lazaro started running uh, in pursuit of this giant, but it was hovering above the uh, above the sand, so it was like gliding, and the kids just couldn't keep up with it. Um, but um, strange, it's strange indeed. Um, and the giant actually stopped moving and turned its head toward Pedro and Lazaro and its black eyes uh, basically stared at him and that's when they stopped. So it was like, don't follow me. Um, at least that, that was the impression they got. That's probably the impression I'd get too. So they were like, okay, maybe not. Um, so the couple that they had initially saw, the weird transformed couple, they... Um, were out of the picture. They don't know where they went. And the giant obviously left because they couldn't keep up with them. Um, and so the kids, um, th- they basically hung out at the beach. Um, they were kind of chit chatting about it. Um, and they were able to see one last thing before the night ended. And it was, a small white light um, followed by a silent uh, zigzagging trajectory like a bouncing ball. Um, a rather, they said it was a, a rather unimpressive finale. Um, so yeah, it seems kind of like a erratic motion that it was doing. Um, and uh, yeah, they... The as they're leaving, um, Juan Bermundez, who was a adult town resident, um, he was a correspondent for a local radio station as well. He um, he heard what these kids were doing, and um, he decided to go and uh, try and find them. And it sounds like he did. And uh, he had actually. Um, during the investigations after this happened, he actually told the told investigators that he had the chance to observe the giant humanoid on three previous separate occasions during the first hour of dawn. And uh, it says, if true, that would mean that the Batalis Beach had been the str- had been the scene of extreme strangeness even before this night of September 29th. So that's an interesting side bit. Um, so Bermundez helped them investigate the area where these humanoids had apparently accomplished this transformation. And, uh, 
they the group of uh, kids and um, and Bermudez they noticed that the trench that the beans had built was approximately two meters wide by one meter long, and it showed discernible scratch marks on the sand as if it had been done with like long, uh, slender fingers. So that's that's a little creepy. Um, yeah, that's 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 pretty creepy. Um, but anyhow, um, the footprints of these beans uh, that they left on the beach uh, after they made their escape toward the town, um, or during their escape toward the town, they were about eighteen inches long, which is like a foot and a half, and they were six inches at their widest part. So. Obviously not human, um, if we're to believe this uh, account. Um, they had a very prominent arc as well as a huge toe impression that seemed to go deeper than the rest of the foot. Um, which this article says, which raises the question, when the young witnesses saw that... Um, saw the transformed alien couple walk out of the beach, why didn't they notice these feet? Because um, it sounds like they're pretty large feet. Um, but, you know, there's a lot going on. I, I can understand why that wouldn't happen. Um, they also found a lot more footprints than they expected, aside from the ones going from the sand trench to the actual town. Um, uh they're about 20 paces away from the trench. There were imprints of the same size and characteristics, but going in different directions. Um, but these kids never witnessed the couple deviate from their basically straight booking it to the town. Um, and so they really couldn't have had time to do this because the kids were basically looking at him the entire time. So that's a, it's, it's, it's a little strange, strange side note. Um, so, um, the second half of this story, um, and I should mention this because this is a very, very well done summary of the story. Um, this, uh, story is from mysterious universe. Um, and this, uh, Miguel Romero um, wrote this write up. Um, he's also AKA Red Pill Junkie and uh, brilliant, brilliant summary um, of this uh, of this encounter. So much appreciated, um, much appreciation, uh, much appreciation. I should say goes out to goes out to him. So the second half of this story is concerned with the investigation. And some of the evidence that um, that is available for this encounter. And so um, initially, there was a sort of a debunking campaign that went on by a Spanish group of UFO investigators. Um, in short, they said that this was an elaborate hoax put on and that um, the whole episode had been nothing but a big misidentification caused by overexcited imagination. 
Um, they say the red UFO observed by the group of local boys and girls for the past couple weeks, as big as the moon, quote-unquote, had actually been a British ship in charge of laying down underwater cable for a telephone company in that area that was near the coast during the night in question. Um, little too simplistic in my initial reading of this encounter, but you know, um, it seems like they had some agenda that they were trying to debunk this, so... Um, and the it so yeah it used light signals so that was the flashing lights to coordinate um, work with ground personnel. Um, the aliens, according to the, uh, according to the skeptics, were two crew members of the said vessel wearing scuba diving equipment. Um, which uh, okay. Uh, that would explain the rounded heads um, of these of these individuals, um, and they were covering themselves with blankets or towels while they were on the beach. And the white cloud that they observed that they observed coming um, onto the beach was from was from the wake left by a zodiac boat um, that. Uh, that the divers had used to reach the beach. So, um, that doesn't explain everything, though. Um, that does not explain the 10-foot-tall giant. Um, that does not explain the white light coming out of the sky. Um, and that does not explain the massive transformation that happened, um, supposedly. Um, so, yeah. So naturally, after the debunking, there was a man who came in and counter-debunked, um, basically. And this was investigator Juan Jose Benitez. Um, he is, um, he's one of the most, he's a, he's a famous, he's a, sorry, he's a famous UFO hunter in Spain, um, and has been instrumental in, um, kind of, coaxing the government to declassify a good number of cases uh, that were investigated by the Spanish Air Force. So that's very cool. Um, he has also done many interviews, um, traveled thousands of miles around Spain to talk with different individuals that had experienced some sort of UFO phenomenon um, that may not have been uh, able to talk about it if it weren't for his work. So very important guy here. Um so he, he basically, so he tries to counter debunk this. So he tried to corroborate, um, some, so the count, the debunkers said that this, that this red UFO was this British, uh, um, vessel that was laying down, um, that was laying down cable in the ocean. Um, so he, uh, Benitez, uh, corroborated the existence of two, uh, two oceanographic ships, uh, the British Enterprise Two and the CS Monarch, which had been hired by a Spanish subcontractor to conduct work for the telephone, the Telefonica company. Um, and the Monarch had been the one near the coast on the night of September 29th. Um, the debunkers made a mistake, though, in stating that the ship was laying down cable, whereas, in fact, they were actually conducting 
preliminary prospecting. So, it took some hard work from Benitez, but he managed to uncover three important pieces. Um, one... The Monarch had started working September 18th, and its position was 60 miles from the coast, which was too far to have been spotted by these kids. And the witnesses observed the red UFO on the night of the 14th, or started to observe it on the night of September 14th. On the night of the 29th, um, the meteorological report indicated weather conditions were inadequate for any medium to large ship to even approach the coast due to strong winds and uh, low tide. Thirdly, um, when so Benitez was actually able to contact um, the captain of, or sorry. He was able to contact Captain J.A.B. Simpkins, chairman and chief executive of BT Marine, which was the fleet which owned the Monarch. Okay? And he wrote um, in July of 1990, he wrote him a letter stating that the approximate position of their vessel. During the night in question, was thirty miles away from Batalis Beach, and it says, "Consider how during the best viewing conditions, the horizon line on the sea only extends eight miles." So to say that this boat was the source of these lights is, um, not possible. Uh, the boat was too far out. Uh, the horizon line only extends eight miles, and this boat was thirty miles away from the beach. So that it's it's just it's not it's just not possible. Um, adding to this, um, it was also said in Simpkins' letter that. During the operation, he would not have had to employ frogmen, which is also another word for divers. Um, so that also debunks the debunkers because they had stated that the two humanoid uh, alien-looking people were actually scuba divers, but there was no need for scuba divers. So... That just kind of puts it out of the question. So, Benitez, being an experienced uh, UFO researcher, also managed to discover uh, that around the time of the incident, um, two individuals bearing the characteristics of these of this transformed couple were lodging at a small guest house in, in Cunil. And that these quote-unquote tourists registered themselves with uh, with the passports of German citizens. Um, so that's weird. <laughs> uh, I don't know how they got those. That would be interesting to find out. Um, but that's... I'm sure that's extremely complicated. Um, 
Also, on the night of September 27th to the night of September 30th, which encompasses, obviously, September 29th, the military radar station located in Cadiz suffered an inexplicable, inexplicable malfunction which rendered the whole Canil area dark. So it, it wasn't functioning. Um, now, this, this, I think, is honestly one of the most important things. Because often you hear uh, in UFO encounters that it disrupts all, like, communication equipment, all electronics, like, go haywire. And this thing was knocked, this was a military installation, not a military radar station knocked out for the 27th, 28th, 29th, and 30th. So that's pretty crazy. If we're to believe, if we're to believe everything, that's pretty nuts. Um... So, um, story doesn't end though. Um, there was a local, uh, UFO hunter, Jesus Borrego Lopez, that was about, um, so he was about to change, uh, when he decided to travel to Conil in search, uh, of more answers. So, a police officer, 44 years old, assigned to the security and control office of the town of, or the Cadiz Town Hall, Borrego Lopez easily managed to locate four of the witnesses. So, he located the kids, um, and they answered his questions. Um, they, um, they told him the story. Um, the researcher accompany or... The researcher asked them, uh, Borrego Lopez asked them to uh, ask them to accompany him to the beach where they um, they went there and uh, they hung out um, and they basically they told they told him everything. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, this, uh, this 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 honestly actually made me laugh. Um, it was around ten thirty five when the group. They were hanging out at a bar. The group, the group instantly fell silent because they had noticed a strange couple crossing in front of them towards the sea. Borrego Lopez even was the first to say, quote unquote, have you noticed the forehead of that man? So the kids were, the kids said nothing and they kept looking at these odd individuals. Borrego Lopez said, look at his height. He measures two meters tall easily. The boys finally spoke and confirmed that indeed this couple was the same couple that they had observed leaving the Batalis Beach after their supposed transformation in the sand trench. That's... I don't know. That's just like a. If this story is true, that is just a weird coincidence. That is like that is just super coincidental. Um, so Borrego Lopez and Pedro Sanchez quickly got up at the ta- got up at the table and um, they left the kids with the clear intention of intersecting the couple who were about to. Uh, well, they were about 150 meters uh, ahead at the time. 
Berga Lopez said uh, visibility was perfect. They weren't like it wasn't like really dark to where they couldn't see anything. Um, so they were keeping pace with this odd couple, and the individuals suddenly just vanished in front of them. They disappeared. Um, the uh, Berga Lopez and Pedro uh, they they looked in all directions, just couldn't find couldn't find anything, and um, they were freaked out by this, um, and, uh, they went back, uh, they went back to the bar and joined, joined the kids, and they observed, um, a, they observed a dark ball, uh, which kept moving toward them at a, at a weird, weird speed. As it got near, the witnesses saw how the shape started to change, and its trajectory became more erratic. And, um, the group continued to observe this thing until they finally realized that the dark mass was actually a human figure and its legs were moving so fast. They were a mere blur. And, um, this ended up being some sort of woman and she was standing in front of the group very close to the water's edge without any warning. She removed the upper portion of her clothes to reveal her female curves and she started walking toward the cape. When she had put some distance between herself and the group, um, they observed yet another figure who joined her. And they watched the two individuals lose themselves into the night. Um, this thing had apparently been traveling, or it traversed a distance of four kilometers in 45 seconds, which is unprecedented. Um, it, and yeah... Uh, this is, this is, it just gets weird. Um, Borrego Lopez confirmed, um, there were no more tracks. Um, there were no tracks. Um, and yeah. The last encounter, however, um, was with, um, with this couple. So they made contact with the couple again. And one of the boys was carrying a Super 8 film camera. And he began um, recording these individuals as they hurried um, as they hurried past the kids and uh, Borrego Lopez. The man looked straight into Borrego's Lopez into Borrego Lopez's eyes with cold uh, with a cold, unfriendly stare. His face was pale. The woman, on the other hand, was actually beautiful, and she seemed to have some oriental features. Um, her eyes were slanted slightly. The UFO, uh, the UFO hunter Borrego Lopez noticed both their clothes were completely dry, um, and they didn't talk to the couple. And ironically enough, and I'll end it right here, the Super 8 film that one of the boys was carrying um, revealed nothing. He filmed the couple as they walked by and conveniently, nothing was on the film. So, I'm going to end it there. Um, We're getting about to time, and my voice is getting tired, to be completely honest with you. Um, 
So yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, again, uh, thanks to um, Mysterious Universe and the write-up on this. Um, great story. Um, I don't know personally how much I... I'm kind of in between. The corroboration... Uh, is, is is the corroboration though is um, pretty legitimate to me um, but again wasn't there don't know don't know about it um, as far as UFO phenomenon goes I do think there is some sort of there's something going on I don't know specifically what it was or what it is what it continues to be um, but if anyone was wondering how I feel about that uh, kind of in between I don't know. Don't know. But anyway, that's where we're going to end it. Um, thank you guys for listening. Uh, I appreciate uh, appreciate all listeners, um, everyone who's been with me from the start. Um, me and Kyle, I should say, even though he's not here. Shame on him. Um, <laughs> but appreciate everybody. Um, we're approaching one year, so that's awesome. We've made it this far. We love doing it. Um, love finding stories for you guys that are weird and, uh, yeah, go check out, um, Asgardia. Maybe you can become a space citizen. Um, and Hey, sounds pretty good to me. Um, no earthly conflicts. That sounds pretty nice, but yes, um, catch us on Twitter, uh, world we live pod, iTunes podcasts, uh, rate and review um we're on spotify audio boom stitcher um all the ones that hopefully are convenient and readily available uh everyone have a good weekend and we'll catch you next week thanks